Hello and welcome to Unpleasant Movies, the podcast dedicated to harsh and unrelenting cinema. My name is Svara Ogur. And I'm Thomas Simonsen Bamra. And today we are discussing the last epic science fiction movie of Andrzej Zawski, On the Silver Globe, which was shot from 76 to 77 and released in 1988. And it's based on a trilogy of early science fiction books, written by his granduncle, Jerzy Sudowski. The cinematography is by Andrzej Jarozowicz, costume design by Magdalene Teslowska, makeup is by Anna Vludarczyk, music is by Andrzej Korzynski, who also scored Possession and a bunch of Sudowski's other movies. The cast is Jerzy Trela as uh, the old man, Jerzy, Ivona Biedzka as Martha, Jerzy Gralek as Peter, Andrzej Severin as Marek, and Grazina Dilag as Yesal. Before we get into the plot, just uh, keep in mind that we do talk extensively about what happens in this movie, and there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen the film, go do that first. Yeah, if you've got two and a half hours to spare. Yeah. So what's this movie about? In very short terms, there are a bunch of astronauts who are heading for a planet, but they kind of crash land, and one of them has already died, another one dies shortly after, and they're trying to survive on this planet, which is very stark and uh, inhospitable, but they soon start having kids, but the kids grow up very quickly. Yeah, like the aging yeah. is more they rapid. Yeah, they age rapidly. Yeah. And so, like, a society builds while they're, they're going old. And in the end, uh, Jersey is like the old man. He's the last one. And then we jump forward many years, at least on this planet in terms of the people. And another astronaut from Earth arrives called Marek. At this time, there's a, there's a much larger society. They're warring with a bunch of crow people on the other side of the shore. And he's kind of picked out as a sort of a, a chosen messiah who's supposed to save the people. And he does lead a war effort, which is more or less successful, kind of difficult to tell. But when he returns, there's been some trouble and he's kind of hated upon and crucified. At which point two of the descendants kind of find one of the rockets and they travel to Earth. And uh, the film more or less ends there. That's like in short terms. Now, this is based on a trilogy of books called the Lunar Trilogy. It's called the Lunar Trilogy because in the books they don't go to the moon. But when they made the film, it's, it's just an unspecified planet called the Silver Globe. And the books originally written in the early 1900s, they're kind of released in short form in newspapers and stuff, kind of like Dickens. The first part of it was published in 1901, and then the first book, The Silver Globe, was released in 1903 as a finished book. And then I think the second book, The Conqueror, came in 1910, and the last book, The Old Earth, came in 1911. And the first book... It's kind of a diary format, kind of like Bram Stoker's Dracula. Like there's diary entries from one of the people, whilst the second is much more kind of a grandiose thing. And the third is basically set on the old earth, more or less. Now, the film doesn't, it kind of stops at the very beginning of the third book. So it's hugely condensed, of course. And, you know, there's a huge bunch of characters that we kind of meet only a little bit and don't get to know so well in the film. And, and there's kind of a style shift. So the first part of the film is told a lot in these um, body cam style. 
It's but, almost like uh, a vlogging style. Yeah, and scenes are kind of interrupted, harsh, and then it jumps a lot in time, which is... Uh, I mean, it's found footage, basically. Yeah, it's basically found footage. I think the idea is that the camera is on the astronaut suits and you, you kind of see from that perspective. And then when Marek, the astronaut who comes later and is kind of the, the false... The messiah. Yeah, the messiah figure that they pick out. Then it goes to more like a, a normal style that we recognize from other films. But these books, example of like really early science fiction, like Jules Verne would have been known, and it's more or less contemporary with H.G. Wells. It was kind of a, a wave of early science fiction around that time with, yeah. you know, Jules Verne and H.P. Lovecraft started his uh, writings and uh, a lot of very interesting, also like uh, social commentary of science fiction. Definitely. Uh, the book We, Mikhail Bulgakov, mm. uh, the Fatal Eggs, stuff like that. A lot of people dabbled in sort of a social commentary science fiction as a framing device to say something about society. Absolutely. And and Jerzy, he was born in a time when Poland as a country itself didn't actually exist. It had been separated by neighboring states. And I think the part he lived in was in part of Austria. Later on, it would become Poland again. And it had, of course, been a country before as well. But in this period, it wasn't a country of its own. A lot of his personal like experience and feelings around this kind of existence kind of influenced a lot of, of uh, Jerzy's work, too, who was a very interesting guy in and of himself. Uh, not only did he write a lot of books and had an academic career, but uh, he also painted and apparently signed his paintings for a period at least, both with his name and with like the drug he was taking while he was painting. I think he became kind of like a countercultural icon in the 60s for a new wave of authors. And Stanislav Lem has, of, has also referred to him as being like a very important inspiration in terms of just writing science fiction. Uh, yeah, I think more artists and musicians and, and all creative people should just sign whatever drug they were on during the creative process. Yeah. Just as sort of a, a, a guidance to, uh, to future <laughs> artists. A bit of a how-to. Yeah. I think that's uh, very reasonable. But yeah, he, he seemed like a really interesting guy. And it's fascinating that he was the granduncle of Andrzej Zhaovsky. It seems there was something in those family genes. Definitely a very creative family. And I read somewhere, I'm not sure where, but the Zhaovsky family, they come from like the descendants of like cultural nobles or like cultural elite of the, of the old Poland or something. But of course, that was all kind of torn apart when the, the country didn't exist and stuff. But um, yeah, I mean, no, Poland had a very strong history of nobility and uh, important families in the European context. I mean, they were a great state in the old Europe. And of course, uh, during uh, Jersey's writing of the trilogy, it was a deeply Catholic state as well. Well, of course, under Andrzej Szyowski's making of the movies, it was a deeply communist state. Yeah. So you have these sort of opposing, but very fundamental ideologies as the backdrop of both of these creative works. Yeah, it's interesting, those things, because Jerzy, he had a lot of religious criticism built into his books. But as far as I understand it, with Andrzej Szyowski, we'll talk about the production history soon, but that was kind of more like a, a anti-communist undertones. And like the religious things weren't like so central as a criticism precisely although they're definitely there but less kind of thematically the point i mean you could view them as allegorical almost like the religious imagery is not the point but they're used as a device to get other points across or more general points across but of course the whole movie is steeped in religious symbolism and imagery i mean that's a huge part of it mm. The book is written in a style that's quite easy to pass, but Andre, when he wrote the manuscript and the dialogue, changed the style a lot. 
it's a lot more like philosophical ramblings and monologuing going on, which, you know, ironically feels more literate, something that's easier to consume, maybe. If you're reading a book, you can go back and read the sentence again. Whereas in the film, moves along so quickly that you're kind of, uh, it's not easy, so easy to grasp at once. It can be quite overwhelming, the huge philosophical monologues that move at a very rapid and frantic pace. Yeah. I mean, it's something you see in a lot of his movies. Uh, definitely. So at this point in Andrzej Zlowski's career, he'd made Third Part of the Night and he'd made Diablo, which we talked about in the last postscript, which is a great movie, but it was not much appreciated in Poland. So it's kind of shunned. And he went to France, made a few films there, most notably The Most Important Thing, Love, which was a big European hit. And the cultural ministry kind of reached out to Zlowski and said, come back and make a new film. Let's, you know, put some money into it. When he came back, he had a lot of personal trouble with his wife. They split up and he was in a very kind of sad and depressed state. And I think he'd been wanting to do it for a long time, but he started to think about adapting his granduncle's book, which he has described as the saddest book or saddest story he'd seen. Because it's very, you know, dystopian and misanthropic, maybe. <laughs> it's kind of bleak. Yeah, it's kind of bleak. So he decided to adapt that. And, you know, it was a prestigious project. I mean, apparently he got a pretty big uh, opportunity to have a, a much higher um, production value Absolutely. than his earlier movies because of his success abroad. Right. You know, one of the things that's important to maybe mention a bit, because there's going to be a back and forth, is that, you know, during like the Soviet era of Eastern Europe, there were a lot of shifts like... Under Stalin, it was very strict. When he died, it kind of loosened up a lot of like what kind of films you can make, what kind of cultures allowed. And then someone new would come along and they would be strict again. So there was a lot of pulsating areas when, yeah, you can make interesting stuff and then, you know, it's very strict again. So when they invited him back, that culture minister was very supportive. And, you know, in terms of European films, it got a pretty good budget. And, you know, they had huge amounts of costume design. They filmed in a whole bunch of locations in the Gobi Desert and the Caucasus Mountains and Crimea. And, you know, lots of extras, lots of actors. And they'd filmed about 80% of the film. So near in completion when there was a new minister of culture. And he's a guy called Janusz Wilhelmy. Boo. Yeah. And he decided to shut down the production. I've read a bit different places. People say different things. Apparently, it's kind of a career move, kind of a fuck you to the last minister. He's much more of a conservative guy, this guy, and, and had like a much stricter view. Like he used some excuses in terms of this is, you know, political allegory for being anti-Polish or anti-Soviet or something. I mean, there were several excuses. I think budgetary concerns were also cited. That, but that he, as well. he seemed like a real like apparatchik. He wanted to impress the communist leadership. Right. He wanted to make a name for himself. And Poland was in an economic crisis. And I think he said something like, they could have built a couple of schools for this money. But it doesn't really make sense when the film's almost finished. And not only to shut down the production, but to order like the destruction of costumes and the film prints. I mean, it's fascinating because not only was it stopped about 80% into the production, but all the costumes and sets and stuff were already made. Yeah. I mean, everything was just ready to finish this movie. Yeah. So it seemed almost more like out of spite. And like Definitely. you said, like a career move. Like yeah. this was a power play by this guy who apparently like died a few months later. Yeah, he did. Wilhelm died in a plane crash in 1978. 
And, you know, a lot of the um, crew and the people, they managed to keep costumes and film tape safe so that not everything got destroyed. What they had filmed wasn't lost, luckily. But it took maybe eight years for there to be like a proper change in the cultural ministry again when they invited Slavsky back and actually proposed, you know, to make the film finished. I guess he had a lot of supporters as well. At that point, you know, the actors were older. A lot of the costumes had fallen apart and filming those old scenes would have been difficult. So Zelowski instead decided to film scenes from contemporary Poland that maybe referred to elements of like the production or the film and then have narration that describes what should have happened instead. And the film opens in this way as well. Like you see a man in like a tribal costume. He's riding down a mountain and there's a narration that's says that this is a film that started in 77 and was finished in 80 and kind of says something about like the making of the movie and it also ends the film with describing the production history of the film and Zelowski even films himself in a, in a shop window you can see him there so it's one of these kind of similar maybe to Lost in La Mancha and Jodorowsky's Dune which is kind of an unfinished film but I mean it also functions very well as a film I would say and incorporating the production history kind of adds another layer to the film. It's fascinating because to me it reminds me of a lot of archival and conservationist, well, a conservationist's way of thinking about how to restore and sort of maintain older works that are maybe unfinished and destroyed partially or whatever. But it's fascinating to me that he chose this approach instead of finishing it in a more traditional sense. It seems to me like he almost views it with a very historical way and that the production history has become such an integral part of the story of this movie that it felt wrong to him to pretend like that didn't happen or that that didn't have an, a profound effect on this movie. So the end result is kind of weird in the juxtaposition of these modern Polish scenes with this extravagant science fiction, very elaborate set pieces and costume designs. And the contrast is very apparent and it almost feels like a documentary about the movie. Yeah, it's interesting though, because I'd watched this film many years back and rewatched it now, and I checked out some what other people were thinking about the film and, and their thoughts. And a lot of people seem to really appreciate those uh, escapes from the, the main narrative into like filming their contemporary scenes and just explaining very explicitly what's going on. It kind of simplifies a lot of the narrative, makes it a bit more graspable in a sense. I appreciated it myself. I found the plot itself to be very convoluted, in part because it's very hands-off in terms of explaining what's going on. There's very little spoon-feeding and there's very little exposition. You're just thrown into it. So it can feel kind of difficult to get deeply into the story itself. But then you have these, you know, breaks in the narrative where it's almost like storytelling. I like the resonance of that with the sort of tribal culture and stuff storytelling as this very essential human mode of conveying thoughts about humanity and history and stuff. It felt very modally correct, even though it's completely out of place in this science fiction story. But yeah, it gives you a little breather and a little time to take in some very specific context that you're not really given in the narrative itself. Right. 
And you know, there are many reasons why this film is confusing aside from being like quite a compact plot, right? There's a lot of characters. A lot of characters. And some, a lot of them are quite important, but you only meet them two or three times and you have to pay really close attention to see what, you know, okay, this is this person's descendant and this is that friend. And also the film has a very specific look and it doesn't really differentiate from when you're on like the new planet, the silver globe, you're on like this space station i think or like a midway point between the old earth and the silver globe and also the old earth like we do start at the old earth with the mountains and the horse riding tribesmen but they also look so alien it's easy to get confused with those guys and later on different costumes maybe the main visual thing in this film is like the costumes are so fucking amazing for sure. They're really, really special. And that really confused me too. It took me a long time to parse out what the locations were. Yeah. I thought initially the intro took place at the same planet or location as when they land. Like I had a really difficult time understanding the separateness of these places, which in turn leads to a very confusing understanding of the narrative because they're not really very visually separated. No. Everything feels like the same yeah. place almost. Yeah. Like because Earth is so post-apocalyptic in mm. a sense and feels totally alien mm. and even on earth you have this green fire which is on the silver globe which again leads to these very unearthly feelings mm. everything feels alien yeah it does and like everyone is pale and kind of sickly looking and you know if like the earth scenes had been vastly different in terms of let's say location or color or something or with a title screen those things have been much easier to pass i mean what it does it, it starts with this tribesman who comes down with a probe that he delivers to some astronauts scientists guys they got the same suit i, I think they're astronauts and they're wearing space suits at least right and they examine it and find out that it's a really old thing, but it contains like a diary. And when they start to watch that in the next scene, that's when we jump to the planet from the perspective of mostly Yersi, his body cam footage. You jump to the crash yeah. and then they crash at the planet and you have some partial footage of it. Some of it is just explained. That's when you understand like how many of these sort of breaks of explanation you're going to get. They're interspersed, not like equally, but sometimes there's a lot and sometimes it depends on where they managed to film and where they didn't. Right. And sometimes in the middle of a, like a huge, beautiful set piece, there's like a cut to modern day streets. Feels a bit sad because you'd like to see more of that beautiful setup that they made. Yeah, and some of the stuff that's described sounds really cool. Yeah. And it's like, God damn it. But honestly, like, if they had filmed all that stuff, this film must have been at least four hours, if not more. Yeah, but I also wonder if it would have been edited differently yeah, it could if it was actually made to completion mm. in the original vision. When it was put together in the late 80s, I feel like it was, like I mentioned earlier, almost more of an archival thing. And in that sense, I would probably also have put in more. I mean, uh, there's so much cool footage there that even though it can be kind of exhausting in its length, it would be a shame not to have that footage released. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it is a difficult movie. And it's also quite explicit, quite graphic in its use of blood and guts at times and, and violence. 
And it has some nudity, but quite like Possession, it's not objectified nudity. Like, you see parts of bodies, but the camera isn't, like, slovenly examining, like, bodies. It's just there. <laughs> Even the sex scenes are not very sexy. Mm. It feels very, like, the human condition. It feels very primal. I mean, it is primal. They're sort of restarting human society on this planet. Yeah. And it's going quite fast, yeah. generation by generation. Like, I think by the time Jersey is a, a really old man, it's been, like, three generations already and if there's more <laughs> yeah even more and they're losing touch with the original astronauts yeah. they're sort of devolving it's de-evolution it's devo yeah. on this planet and they're devolving into this superstitious tribal mm. society which has prophecies about this old man that kind of refuses to talk about the previous earth and yeah. the previous history whereas earlier he's sort of tried to but it kind of failed well they, they kind of stopped believing him the ideas of earth or old world that's so mythic and, and strange for them and while they age rapidly he ages normally so he must be very old indeed in their terms yeah and they revere him yeah. but they fear him yeah. and they mm. sort of dislike him mm. at the same time he's a very unsettling figure in their society yeah he's this relic that shouldn't be yeah, but he's also a kind of guy that, you know, when you first meet the original four astronauts, Pieter, Martha and uh, Jerzy, Tomasz dies pretty quickly. Pieter is pretty outspoken and Martha as well, but Jerzy, he's not really a guy who speaks so much. He kind of documents a lot of stuff and he's present a lot of the time, but doesn't take so much space. And I think that kind of elevates his figure as, as kind of a mystic old mystic mystical yeah. mystic he's this esoteric guy and he talks about it himself how he should have been a monk or something he seems very ascetic contemplative but he wants to document the whole situation i mean it's sort of from his viewpoint we're seeing this he's described as being an old man even when he was young or someone that refers to him in that sense very serious guy mm. I mean, it is confusing because that first part, which is kind of fan footage, you know, it jumps in time pretty harshly and it's kind of overwhelming to understand the relationships and that it's the same place because, you know, suddenly there is like dozens and dozens of people on that beach where they've established their settlements. Yeah, there's lots of um, huts and they have tribal markings on them. And, you know, it seems like they've really quickly established this culture there. Mm. And it's kind of confusing because it happened so quickly and you're not sure if it's all from the astronauts or like what's going on. It's not really... Yeah, it's not explained very explicitly. Yeah, it's not very explicit. So Martha, she's she's the mother of all these descendants. She's and, Eve, basically. Yeah, and Peter is mostly their father, but Yersi has a daughter with Martha whose name is Ada. The last child of Martha. And we kind of get that a little bit, and then we see her as a grown woman when he's really old, and then she's kind of an important figure. And there are several characters that are very important in specific scenes, and then maybe some people who look a bit like them later on. There's some confusing stuff there. Because it jumps generation to generation quite rapidly. Yeah, as a start of the film, it's a bit confusing. And then when you suddenly with completely new characters halfway through, that can be disorientating. I mean, this time around, I kind of made notes as I was watching it. That made it a lot easier. <laughs> I mean, you gotta make an effort to pay attention to this because so much stuff happens. Right. There's so many characters and everything's so alien mm. and there's so little explicit exposition. Like, it's a very difficult movie. 
but extremely rewarding, I would say. And especially a second viewing where things were kind of a bit easier to pass. I was thinking that I might benefit a lot from a second viewing mm. uh, as the first viewing was very confusing to me. But at the same time, it's an extremely aesthetically interesting movie. Yeah, yeah. It's so beautiful and so harsh and extravagant. The designs are just so interesting. Mm. The alien culture and the makeup and the mm. costuming is mm. just incredible. A lot of it reminds me of stuff you might have seen, like some of the tribal stuff reminds me of like Padme from the Star Wars yeah, prequels definitely. and stuff. Just cooler mm. and a lot darker and bleaker and more and weirder. gothic and mm. weirder. Yeah. And a lot of it reminds me of David Lynch's Dune. Mm. Yeah. There's a lot of weirdness and darkness and uh, macabre uh, designs going on. A lot of it is very beautiful and very otherworldly and the restoration of the footage is also beautiful. So it really comes together in this very mystical and beautiful aesthetic movie. So even if you're having a trouble with the plot and the narrative and the characters and stuff, you still just marvel at the design and, and just sheer scale of it at times too. Parts it reminded me a lot of like Kurosawa, mm. like Ron, mm. these huge outdoor landscapes with a lot of characters, a lot of fabric blowing in the wind, these outlandish outfits. It's just really both impressive how they managed to sort of pull it off and beautiful in the specific designs. Yeah, yeah. And the locations are really interesting. They have these huge salt mines, particularly for like the second part of the film, which is probably kind of dangerous to film, I would expect. And they have a lot of like writhing masses of naked bodies. A lot of extras. Yeah, as you say, people and costumes. And they did construct some sets and stuff for this film as well. But most of the time it feels to me like almost just the choreography of the people kind of build the spaces and the makeup and the costumes. They create so much of this world. Well, a lot of the costumes are really large and with long flowing fabric. And I love the mix of, you know, combining that with these stark and quite weird and morose and lonely landscapes. You know, the locations they've scattered for this movie are great. They're yeah. really beautiful and alien. Mm. And you combine that with this amazing costume design and makeup. And the result is just kind of mesmerizing. Yeah. It's very painterly shot. Like there's a lot of wide angle lenses and the film has this kind of dusty blue gray hue. It looks a lot like a painting much of the time, I think. And maybe like around their eyes is a little bit red, but they kind of have this green, bluish, pale, bleak skin color. A lot of it is makeup and then there's the color grading. A lot of this is also in the restoration work, but, but the, the combined effect mm. of it is very cold and and, you know, we talked about possession. It's also a lot of blues and a lot of cold mm. colors. This one is definitely, I would say it's his most beautiful movie. Mm. It's so grandiose mm. and almost baroque yeah. but at the same time it's really stark and cold and the combination of all this detail and fanciful outfits combined with the cold makeup and the color grading and the cinematography to by Andrzej Jarosovic is really beautiful mm. and especially a lot of the vistas combined with the costuming I just can't get enough of it it's so beautiful like a lot of points in this movie I was like God damn, that's beautiful. Mm. And the film is very engaging. I mean, even, you know, as you say, difficult to follow at times, but the scenes themselves are very luscious and the camera work and the choreography and what's going on is immediate and very intense often. So you're kind of not wanting to look away. It's very exciting to watch. Yeah, and 
a lot of it feels very ahead of its time. The shaky cam, first-person footage. Mm. I don't know, it feels very modern. Yeah, definitely. But it's not just first-person shaky cam. There's a lot of beautiful, more slow-moving stuff as well. There's a lot of different modes and techniques being used. I found myself really drawn to the first portion of the movie, mm. the found footage. Mm. I just found that really interesting. At times, I thought the narrative device or the framing device of it being sort of this found footage felt a bit silly when they sort of move it to, <laughs> yeah. to get a better, yeah, yeah, better yeah. view. That doesn't seem like something you do in the Seems situation. Seems a little bit contrived, maybe. Yeah, but, for sure. Uh, but the resulting footage is super beautiful, mm. so, you know, you can live with that. Yeah. It's a suspension of disbelief for sure for sure i mean it's in a lot of ways it's a very flawed movie but that's part and parcel of the whole project yeah. it's such a mad project like you mentioned jodorowsky's dune it definitely feels like part of that larger than life ambitious mm. extremely like huge and difficult project that just was never meant to be completely i mean you can't pull off something like this perfectly it's just too gigantic mm. and mad but you just really have to applaud the effort and it seems like a lot of the people who worked on it just really felt drawn to it and were really proud of the work yeah. they put into it, considering how many people that stowed away a lot of the costuming and set designs and stuff like that. I mean, you can just picture people being really upset that they couldn't finish this movie. And so many man hours put into this project. I mean, the amount of work into just a few of the costumes alone, like some of the spacesuits with the ribbing and mm. stuff. It seems like it's such a tedious task putting <laughs> this stuff together. There's so much detail that probably didn't get appreciated enough. Yeah, yeah. The costume designer, Magdalena Tislavska, she did such a stunning job. And I think she has had some recognition. I found online, like, uh, notices for exhibitions of costumes that she done. And I mean, it's pure art. Um, the thing about the costumes, they look amazing. I think they were pretty difficult to wear and kind of uh, uncomfortable. And, you know, she did a lot of work for theatre and stuff. It is amazing. And I can just imagine putting all this effort and work into the costuming and design and stuff and then having the whole movie being cancelled. Right. I mean, I would be mm. devastated. Yeah, but I suspect the films had kind of a, a legendary status in Poland. And later decades, you could see some influence of Sulawski, I think, in terms of people being inspired by the kind of look and feel. Oh, yeah. You know, this, sure. this film was very difficult to see for quite a long time. I mean, they did screen it when it came out, but then it... it you know, the thing that's a little bit annoying is there was a documentary that came out this year. It's been on festival routes called Escape to the Silver Globe that goes uh, quite thoroughly into the behind the scenes stuff. And I was not able to watch that. It's not online at this point. But I saw the trailers and I listened to the people behind it talking about the project and one of the things they were talking about is apparently there's some kind of underlying conflict also with another one of Poland's, you know, well-known directors, Wajda. He was making another film at the same time called Man of Marble, part of a series of films he was making. It was also made in 77. Well, I haven't seen the documentary yet, but I kind of inferred that there's something going on between that production and Zuawski's production that kind of influenced the choice to cut off his movie. So I'd like to know more about um But I think, you know, a lot of people were very proud of the work and it's so incredibly unique. It is. I mean, I see a lot of it in Denis Villeneuve's Dune. 
that's really quite cold and stark mm -hmm. too. And a lot of the costuming and vibes, especially of the scenery and the elaborate costuming, I really get a lot of the same vibes. Of course, this movie is a lot weirder. But at the same time, it's quite elegant and beautiful yeah. in huge portions of it. I think um, actually the books have also been compared. Like I haven't read either the Dune books or the Lunar Trilogy, but apparently there's maybe not so much plot-wise, but just in terms of elements being somewhat similar or a similar vein of science fiction. I mean, there's this messiah figure and a lot of religious symbolism and imagery and stuff in both of these mm. books and movies. So yeah, it's definitely had like a pretty strong indirect legacy for a long time. And it's only for the, these later years that it's really been properly reappraised and been... I mean, restored too. It wasn't restored until 2016. I think it was screened right. again. And the books got translated to English for the first time 2021. So last year. This is probably the easiest time to see the film. <laughs> yeah, and appreciate it. Like, we're lucky to have this now. And for many years, it wasn't widely available and not restored and stuff like that. Even in its current state, it's still not a finished project per se, like as it was intended. It's such a weird project in its own. Like, it's such a story around the movie as well. It's just this whole legacy of communist Poland filmmaking and Zulawski's career and everything around it is just very... There's just a lot to this movie and, you know, it's a huge project. Yeah, there's this guy called uh, Daniel Bird who uh, worked with Zalowski later years. I think he did restorations and stuff, and he knew him, and he worked with him in several versions. And I've listened to some of the things he's been talking about, and he was talking about the production of this film, because uh, it's a fraud production in many ways. And allegedly, there's a story of the actor who played the main Shern. The Shern are the crow people. Bird-like monster people. Yeah, they have these lamps in their foreheads they communicate with telepathically. The guy who plays like the one we see the most, he was kind of like a method actor type and an artist and allegedly got somewhat electrocuted in the water or maybe not. That's kind of a, a story around there. And after the film, he like drew a lot of pictures of Shearns and had some psychiatric help. And I mean, if it was a method actor, I can imagine that would um, affect your psyche. Living the life as a horrible human bird hybrid man. <laughs> yeah, these Shearn creatures are very interesting. They look weird. I mean, their costuming is interesting it looks like theater costuming yeah. to me it's not like a star wars costume where you sort of have a lot of movable parts and stuff they feel a bit more static and symbolic their heads are like just a stiff mask and then on the forehead there's like a lamp behind it because they talk telepathically mostly so when they're talking, there's the actor they're talking to, that character, is kind of reciting what they're saying to him, which also makes for some confusing dialogue situations. Sometimes you have a, a voiceover yeah. of their evil voice, but even that's telepathic. That's just sort of how the character understands them. Right. But they kind of hold off that a bit and you don't even know that they can talk directly. So it's very confusing and kind of monolithic and statue-like and weird. They have these wings that are always kind of spanned out. And yeah, it doesn't look like they can fly. No. They can creep around, definitely. They do creep around a lot. Apparently very powerful as they've murdered many, many people and also captured human women and raped them. And they have their own descendants called... The Mort. Yeah, half shun, half human, who are kind of like their agents on this speech society, I guess. But they seem very... Miserable? Miserable, but also they don't seem very active. Like they seem no. passive... I don't know. Yeah, I mean, they seem like creatures that shouldn't be. They're like, please kill us. Mm. <laughs> They're miserable. 
But I don't know, like, it also took me a while to understand, like, when the turns appear, like, that they were turns. Because in a lot of the scenes, you see them from a bit afar. And yeah. there's so many rags and stuff in the costuming that it's a bit confusing. Like, I imagine you could do them more like a Skeksis from the Dark Crystal or whatever. <laughs> make them into, like, really obvious bird monsters. But instead, they've opted for this more, like, mysterious... I mean, and, and that functions as part of the plot, too, because these bird creatures are kind of these esoteric creatures of power that can control people's minds mm. and, you know, telepathically communicate and control people. So it makes sense in that regard, too. But I, I don't think it's, like, 100% successful. It feels kind of janky at times and kind of difficult to focus on their costuming. It's... I really like it, though. I mean, success is such a weird thing to plaster on this sort of production, I think. Yeah, this whole production is so weird and crazy that success is indeed kind of a weird metric to put on it. <laughs> and throughout the movie, I mean, it grows on me a lot. And you see more of it later, and I think it works better and better. And some of the costuming is better than others. But later in the movie, you see more of close-ups and stuff, and it looks actually really cool. Mm. And I like the idea of the glowing forehead, yeah. little details like that. I mean, it takes some time getting used to, like most things in this film. And, you know, I was thinking a lot about the style of the film and kind of like the style of the dialogue, because they're like these big philosophical monologues, almost like the thematic subtext that they're speaking in high concept terms. Often uh, very frantically and intensely. That's right, because they're in like in a very raw emotional state, but they're not communicating in a raw emotional language, communicating in a high concept language, often very like poetic imagery and existential. Yeah, it doesn't feel very natural. Like nobody would speak like that in a situation yeah. like that. It feels very, like you said, poetic. And what it reminds me most of maybe is Tarkovsky, like Stalker. Yeah, for sure, for sure. But the big difference in Stalker is that that's a much slower, much more reflective. It gives you a lot of space to dwell on what's being said and what's happening. Like the set pieces, grand and beautiful as they are, the more so sort of sparsed out, it's easier to get your head around what we're dealing with thematically and in the situations. Yeah. While here you're rushing along so quickly that... As you're starting to think about what this person is saying, you're already in the next part that's grabbing some new parts of your attention. Yeah, a lot of the pacing reminded me of his 1972 movie, in Diablo. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of frantic movement and a lot of almost ravings mm. of philosophical considerations and monologues and the emotional intensity mm. is often very high yeah. at times to me it was kind of tedious but at times it worked very well there was just a lot of it constantly i grew a bit numb to it at yeah. times it's really a lot it doesn't really relent in many places yeah. there are times here and there where you have these more slow moving mm. scenes but a lot of it is just really intense philosophical monologuing on a almost screaming level you know, it's difficult to like say, <laughs> oh, this is successful or not. It's there. It's really there. <laughs> it is overwhelming. And I think like the more you watch it, you, you rip your head around it easier. But, you know, having seen some of his films, I suspect Stilowski, you know, I think he was quite a character. And I think he, he was really good at building myths around himself as well. And I think this kind of emotional, very sort of intense outbursts, I kind of suspect that that's kind of part of his emotional landscape as well. And it's a strange when you talk about what's like naturalistic acting and what's kind of theatrical or unlike real life. I mean, because real life can be very intense and unfilmatic in terms of an idea. Yeah, what's natural uh, or naturalistic 
But there's an argument to be made for like the idea of naturalistic acting also be an abstraction that doesn't reflect all of, you know, human communication. I mean, acting is acting. Yes. Yeah. It's by definition, <laughs> not real. But this movie is incredibly stylistic in every aspect. And that's part and parcel of the whole thing. You have to get into that mode to appreciate it. And I found it difficult at times, but in large part, to me, it was parsing the narrative and the context of everything in this very long and intense movie. Mm. Because there's so much to take in. And like I mentioned earlier, I feel like a second viewing, you'd probably appreciate probably different aspects a lot. As all this philosophical monologuing is taking place, you're also trying to parse the actual plot, the characters, mm. the relationships, mm. etc., etc., while these high-minded, philosophical, almost didactic speechifying is going on. And a lot of it sounds interesting, but it is difficult. And I mean, Zhovsky has a background in philosophy, and a lot of it is very complex. But Andrzej Zhovsky, he, he um, I think it was Daniel Bird who described most of Zhovsky's films as more or less love triangle stories, definitely very clearly in possession. And here as well, there's a lot of relationships with an unfaithfulness element. Yeah, and I mean, during this period, he was going through a breakup with his wife. Exactly. Which I recall us talking about Possession, mm. which had a lot of the same relationship issues yeah. in, in the wake of that movie. Seems he has a lot of personal drama when creating these, you know, harsh and unrelenting, <laughs> as we talk about here. These movies are really harsh and unrelenting. Yeah. They mirror each other quite movies. interestingly, of course, because in the periods between having done the production of this film, he was kind of thrown out of Poland, more or less, went to America, wrote the script from a monster movie, which turned into Possession, which he filmed in Berlin. And that was a lot about his breakup with his wife, but also like the drama around a silver globe, which went to hell. So he was at a pretty low place. And then he comes back in the 80s and is allowed to finish the silver globe. So they're kind of connected to each other in very interesting ways, uh, these two films, I think. Yeah, really. And, you know, you mentioned earlier, you, you'd like to know more about the situation, the drama of the Polish film scene and stuff. Mm. As far as I understand, he was an outcast, even among outcasts in the Polish film scene. So while other directors managed to sort of toe the line of mm. acceptable criticism of the regime and stuff, Sosky was just never able to do that. He went his own path. He just forged ahead whatever stylistic or artistic direction he wanted, and he paid the price for it, you know? It had consequences. And I think you can tie that in with the personal drama in his life. Mm. I mean, he's, he just seemed like a guy who really went his own way. Mm. And it seemed like it was difficult to persuade him to do something he didn't want to do. At the time when they were assembling the film, Zelowski was approached about kind of remaking the lost scenes as animated sequences. Or this might actually have been later. It might have been for the restoration. I'm not sure. That would have been interesting. I suspect it actually works a lot better the way it's now. It might have been cool, but I think like visually it would have been so distinctly different. And when you already lack kind of the visual distinction between old earth and the silver globe, it might have been interesting. But the way it works now with kind of the modern Poland and these very clear descriptions of <laughs> plot and situation, it just kind of gives the film a different level, which is intriguing in and of itself. In many ways, it heightens the project of On the Silver Globe. It's the film plot, right? 
It's Zelowski's own troubles. It's the production history of the film. It just kind of enriches what the project is instead of just thinking, oh, the purest way for the film to exist is like a closer to the book or closer to original intent. I mean, it can't ever be that. And I think actually it's a richer film for it. I find it very interesting. And to me, it speaks to the, maybe Zelowski's idea of the transience of art in that you can't really capture something that's gone. And he just wouldn't even attempt to do that in the original conception of the movie. It is jarring, though, like the juxtaposition of the modern Polish footage with the old science fiction, very grandiose and put together footage. It is kind of wrong in some sense, but that makes the project what it is. I agree that the project might be richer for it, but it is a very bold decision. <laughs> yeah. But this director seems to be making a lot of bold decisions throughout his career, and he seems very comfortable making uncomfortable decisions. Yeah. When is it comfortable? It's difficult to say. <laughs> but... Um... Like there's so many specific details or scenes from this film that I'd, I'd just love to dwell into. You know, when Marek, who's the astronaut that comes on later on in the second half of the movie, mm -hmm. he has been warring with the Scherns because he has established a relationship. Because, yeah, this is when it starts getting complicated, right? Because while we're following Marek, we also go to Old Earth a little bit and follow his mate, and kind of romantic rival. Yeah. Turns out he has been having an affair with Marek's wife, Aza, who's like a popular actress. And they've kind of contrived a situation to send Marek away to the Silver Globe. To get rid of him. Yeah. But on the Silver Globe, Marek establishes a, a relationship with Ihezal, who is the daughter of the high priest Malahunda. He sort of defers to the Messiah because he has the leadership role in the society. Right. And then the Messiah gets there and he's like, oh, my liege. And Mark kind of declares that she's proper love, whilst Azar maybe not. They're kind of discussing that situation. Yeah, there's so many details. Like, I love when Mark comes to the planet and he comes into this wooded area and there's all these warriors, I guess. And they have these weapons, they're kind of like scythes, but they're wooden. And the music is very soft and... Terrible. Weird and really positive. Yeah. And yeah. at first I couldn't understand, is that like a fight scene? I guess it's a reception, but... It looks like a fight scene. I mean, there is fighting going on, but is yeah. that like ritualistic? Because yeah, yeah. it doesn't really look... It's not so aggressive. And, but... and like the music is so playful and nice. It's, yeah, it's the music is... <laughs> it's really jarring in a way. Again, it's a really kind of wrong choice that kind of works. I mean, yeah. you remember it. Yeah, it's very striking. But then after this positive and very like major scale music, after that piece, the music suddenly turns kind of terrifying. Yeah. And... and then they go to the beach and then there's a proper fighting going on. Yeah. And he's already been told that they think he's the Messiah and he's going to save them all. And, you know, he's kind of dumbfounded by this. But he decides to run out and start fighting. And it's so funny because immediately what happens, he comes close to this horse riding person and he just casually knocks his head a little bit and it starts to bleed intensely. Yeah. And it's completely useless. And all the yeah. other people, they have to kind of gather around him and hide the fact that the Messiah is bleeding. Yeah, he has this huge gash in his yeah. forehead. It's just kind of pathetic. It's really pathetic. Yeah. <laughs> and so stupid and so funny in a way yeah. that like immediately he gets seriously injured and you know large part of this movie there are main characters that are bleeding from their heads and yeah. they got blood marks on their faces and there stuff. is a lot of blood in this movie yeah. a lot of violence a lot of characters are really pathetic 
Yeah. I mean, that's almost as close as humor as you get in this movie. It's a very dark and bleak movie, but there's just these sort of incongruous parts sometimes. There's a few scenes where the music is something like this jaunty 70s rock music yeah 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 and it's 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 really kind of bizarre i don't even know what i feel about that it feels wrong on so many levels it's weird because you have some of these scenes with jack and Azza on the old earth and jack has this it's kind of like a, a mix between the batmobile like the old <laughs> 60s batmobile yeah. and like the mad max it predates mad max of course but it's, it's kind of like a mix between those two it has these huge spoilers on the back yeah it's and... like this old american sedan from the 50s <laughs> with this like retro futurism it looks really stupid yeah. actually and i didn't really un- like was that supposed to be like some sort of spacecraft like i didn't understand when i first saw it i just thought it looked really silly yeah and it does it's uh, kind of cool as well kind and, of cool. and he's running around in this landscape because he's gotten some drugs from some tribal people because he wants to know the truth and when he's riding around, they turn on this rock music. Yeah. <laughs> and this music is used a couple of times in the film, but it's unlike any other elements of sound in the film. And kind yeah. of like, you know, it reminds me a little bit of sometimes you have these animes from Japan that suddenly put on like a girly pop tune on like an action scene. And it feels like totally out of place to me. Yep. It, it reminds me a little bit of that sort of thing where you just take a bit of music that's genre wise and stylistically so unlike what you expect. For sure. You know, my mind drifts towards Jodorowsky's Dune again, where it planned to bring Pink Floyd mm. to do the soundtrack and stuff. Mm. And it, it sounds incredibly weird to put a classic rock band. I mean, at the time it wasn't classic. I guess you'd call it kind of stadium prog rock mm. or whatever. The madness of mixing these elements in a way that probably felt a bit more natural in the 70s. There was a lot of experimentation going on. Yeah. I mean, the production of this movie is contemporary with Star Wars. I mean, the differences Same, yeah. are mm. just insane. But there are a lot of similarities as well and it's a very like fertile and creative period for science fiction mm. but yeah I'm, I'm reminded of that like it's bold and brash yeah and Star Wars also is kind of a weird mix of you know samurai films western like old Flash Gordon stuff yeah 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 and a lot of that stuff has more or less become a stereotype these days but mixing and mashing loads of different styles and genres in that way and also doing like homages to the earlier like golden age of science fiction with the retro futurism mm. and stuff like if you look at C-3PO's design mm. for instance a lot of it is like based basically on like pulpy science fiction magazines and novels and stuff. And uh, you see it in this movie too with that kind of idiotic Batmobile <laughs> and, and some other design elements while others feel extremely like mm. forward thinking. And it's really a hodgepodge of stuff. And a lot of it doesn't work kind of in a traditional sense, but it's it's fascinating <laughs> yeah. to watch and enjoy. Yeah, it is very fascinating to enjoy and at times very intense and quite difficult as I started to try to say before, after having battled the Sherns, he's kind of left Ihazal, daughter of the high priest. They've had a romantic relationship. He leaves and meanwhile she starts to stab the Shern who's there and is raped by the Shern because he overpowers her. And when he comes back from warring, she's covered in white. Her face is completely covered and they travel out together to this stone henge on an island area and here it's very dreamlike and has a few hard cuts i don't think that's production history i think that's just the mood of the scene <laughs> yeah but he takes off her shawl and she has these horrible disease lumps in her face yeah it's like she's a plague uh, patient or yeah anything. And then he turns and looks at another figure in the middle of the Stonehenge 
who I think is one of the actors of that society. And he gives him some little figurines of a man and a woman and then falls over, bleeding to death, having been stabbed in the back. And when he turns around, Isdehal is in a boat with a bunch of sherns being rowed over. Meanwhile, also Marek's face is all crumpled up because he's got clay all over it and he's covered in rags. <laughs> yeah. He looks very crazy. It looks then, like a clay person. And then he swims across the shore back to the, the beach society. And another one of the characters has been put on a huge spike, many meters high. He's bleeding his guts down along this spike and still alive and, you know, proclamating monologues about when your guts hang out, like your secrets are exposed and that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's really brutal. Like they're impaled, like some sort of medieval torture device and disemboweled and it's horrific. Mm. And the special effects are actually kind of cool. Yeah. Um, and it looks horrific. And I thought initially there were like puppets on top of the spikes, <laughs> but in one of the shots they pan to him like from the top and it's re like really visually yeah. really cool. And you see it's actually the actor on top of this huge pole. Yeah. This second part has a lot of these huge crane shots, which are very epic and very beautiful. Kind of lifts the production's value a lot, unlike the first part, which is much more claustrophobic, you know, bits of scenes cut together. Yeah, it's also beautiful, but it's way more um, personal, whereas the second part feels very grandiose. Mm, it does. I also really like the beach society. It, it kind of feels like uh, Lord of the Flies on steroids. I'm just fascinated by how the descendants of these astronauts sort of de-evolved in this tribal society. And I feel like that's kind of a, a good observation. Again, I, I like Sudovsky's observations on human nature. He seems quite pessimistic <laughs> towards human nature, but I feel there's a lot of truth in his views and his depictions of humans. And their petty squabbles, again, with the way the Messiah is initially hurt very quickly. And it just shows how all humans are frail. Like, even if you put them on a pedestal, they're frail and they're human. And I feel like a lot of the ways he depicts human interaction really shows that, especially in this movie, how it shows how religious figures and Messiah figures, Christ-like figures, political leaders, whatever, they're all shown as these kind of bumbling morons that are really frail and prone to illness and injury and disease and torture and being killed. I mean, it feels very epic in scope mm. and yet feels kind of pathetic as well. Yeah, and there's so much despair and existential angst. So much and of it. Like, just so much screaming and human agony. The characters are always on edge emotionally and they feel isolated in a lot of ways and always searching for meaning or understanding in a very desperate way. They're grasping at their place in the world. Their social status is always shifting and like one moment he's the messiah, another he's hunted down and thrown rocks at and mutilated yeah. and stoned. crucified. Yeah. And that scene also, when he gets stoned and hunted, they're obviously throwing something at him, probably not rocks, but it looks very real. And whatever the makeup they do in his face, he looks disfigured. It looks really brutal, yeah. that scene. But he's almost already gone in his head. At yeah. That point. And the whole crucifixion scene, I mean, it's incredibly aestheticized as well, but it looks terrible. It's beautiful in its terribleness. Yeah, it's very monolithic in a way. Yeah, and primal and essential. But it seems to me like all the characters in this movie are sort of grasping at meaning and struggling with this deep existential dread and struggling to understand their existence. Mm. Almost being aggressive because they don't understand it. They're kind of pissed off 
at yeah. the meaningless <laughs> of life. And uh, you see it especially when the descendants of the first astronauts, they're kind of passive aggressive towards this old man that's been there since their entire existence. And they don't understand it and they feel hostile about mm. it. I mean, he's sort of a symbol of their own frailty, like they die and disappear, but he just remains mm. this aloof figure above them. And I love how petty and passive aggressive all the characters in the movie are. They really feel so insecure about their own existence. These first astronauts that land, they're so disenchanted. You know, ostensibly they're coming to a new world to start like a new society. Or maybe they're just exploring and they can't get back home. But it kind of reminds me a lot of this TV series Raised by Wolves. Yeah. Which has a similar kind of setup of trying to colonize a distant planet. That's true. But Raised by Wolves is kind of like <laughs> on a silver globe mixed with Dark Souls, I feel. <laughs> <laughs> but the setup feels similar. In terms of, you know, you're trying really hard to survive and then a culture starts to grow and it, it's quite terrible and horrible things happen. Yeah, and it shows the fragility of a nascent human society. Mm. It's so easy for things to go wrong in a survival situation. Mm. And these small human societies are really prone to being torn apart quite easily by strife. I mean, I hadn't considered the Raised by Wolves uh, comparison, but really it's very true. I mean, they're stylistically quite different. There's something maybe of the color palette, particularly of the first season, that's similar. And they're um, also quite, um, I don't know if sterile is the word I'd use, yeah. but they're quite ruthless. Yeah, there's desolate landscapes yeah. and harsh environments. And, and bleak. It's totally very different in terms of the actors, but something of like the desperation. Yeah, it's amped to a thousand in uh, Silver Globe, of course. But, um, Both of them have this existential dread yeah. of the meaning of existence and meeting your creators mm. and dealing with the meaning of your existence. It's a lot more intense in uh, Silver Globe, mm. but I think they deal thematically with a lot of the same issues. And of course, we talked about it with Possession as well, that it does remind of Ingmar Bergman. Maybe maybe a seventh seal is the good comparison here oh, yeah. in terms of desperation with existence and and your place in the world there as well you have a lot more time to dwell and feel their anguish here you're always like chugging along at a high speed and true but i mean seventh seal there's a lot of philosophical musings that are vaguely reminiscent of the uh, silver globe yeah. but a lot of the cinematography too like the bleak landscapes of the you know shrouded figures and stuff mm. it is reminiscent in an interesting way a lot of bergman movies have these desolate landscapes mm. and uh, usually a lot of wind blowing and these kind of minuscule human figures set into these desolate landscapes. Mm. It evokes a certain feeling, and there's a lot of it in this movie. And I really like that. It's very visually poetic. Mm. And of course, grasping with these human existential themes, it's very suitable visually. It rhymes visually with, uh, with the narrative themes. Definitely. And the type of tribal style, science fiction, makeup and costumes nascent societies defining themselves and looking for value and symbols and meaning and they do have a lot of makeup and, and masks and stuff that seem very ritualistic but you're not entirely sure what the ritual is or what the meaning or intent behind it is the context is very foreign and you're left kind of just in awe of the visuality and numbstruck by this sublime dread of understanding things going to hell, basically. Yeah, and 
the costuming and the ritualistic face paints and everything. I mean, humans are ritualistic animals. We are symbolic animals. We like to use things to put things into systems and contexts and use them as metaphors and guidance for our own lives, right? All of that rings very true while being alien and stuff because it's not the society or rituals or symbols we are used to. But at the same time, it just seems very true in the context of the movie and it works very well in a very like primitive essentialistic way like i talked about it in possession too like there's this almost biblical dread in these movies that is very palpable the questions that are being grappled with philosophically in these works are very big and you know you're dealing with these like enormous existential questions in this really complex and really high production movie and it's just, it's a lot. It's a dense and difficult movie. And the intensity level is so high. The acting is very intense. The characters, they're so often in this kind of ecstatic fever. They're very impulsive, questioning themselves and their thoughts. And another touchstone that I thought of was uh, Herzog's Agira, The Wrath of God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With Klaus Kinski, especially like raving on that float on his own at the end. That kind of... The Wrath of God. Yeah, the raw estrangement and this deep sense of loneliness and despising oneself and the world. Yeah. I thought maybe I'd just cite a little bit of the dialogue. This is from the part where Jack is, is on the old earth and he's raving around in his Mad Max car. And he says, Ultimately, every reduction to physiology is the fascism of the soul. It is shrinking instead of growing, just as if everything came down to the judgment that while living, man does nothing, and only a cripple or a dead man creates. I mean, that's well put. And it brings me to something I thought of earlier as we were talking about this movie. A lot of the monologues and ravings in this movie really remind me of Nietzsche's Zarathustra. The sort of yeah. ecstatic mode of philosophical madness mm -hmm. and grasping at eternal truths while at the same time being incredibly disillusioned and almost misanthropic. It really reminds me of that. It's kind of uncomfortable and very interesting to listen to, but at the same time kind of tedious mm. and... It does have this Nietzschean quality to it. Yeah, I may be mistaken, but I think Nietzsche was an influence on Hege or Andrei Zelowski. Yeah, I have read that. I don't know in how big a part, but it definitely feels Nietzschean to me. Apparently, also, Jerzy Zelowski was um, very concerned with something he called synthetic monoism as like a, a grounding theory to a lot of his creative work and thinking. And I'm not sure if that was something he defined himself, but apparently it's based on the hypothesis that being has both a material and a transcendental quality, that it is simultaneously absolute and an ongoing process. From the moment that evolution created the individual consciousness, culture is in a state of eternal evolution, propelled by prominent figures who create their own synthetic projections of the world. And some forms of absolute monism are very concerned with like, there's only one type of material and everything's a variation of that. Or that there's only the physical, like you have no aspect of soul, it's just there's, the body. Or, yeah, nothing metaphysical. Uh, and it seems to me that his idea, based on this, you have like the other element of culture, which is not exactly soul, but you have like the, the physical, natural but you have like an elevated elements that are, are not part of that, that are like the synthetic. That's my speculation, of course. But um, 
maybe that's interesting in terms of understanding. As we talked about earlier, he was also very concerned about living in a country that's torn to pieces and a culture that's under threat. You know, they weren't allowed to teach Polish to kids in school. And a lot of the mode of desperation and trying to find your place in the world and this failed project of colonizing, in that case, it's the moon, right? Or another planet. And the kind of hopelessness of human achievement, which is also, of course, very impressive, but on the element of personhood and society, there's so much cragginess and insecurity and people working against themselves and society crumbling inwards and loss of control and loss of your place in the world, right? What is this space we exist in yeah. and how do we navigate it? To me also, it does seem to grapple with those things. And I think a lot of it has to do with living under oppression, whether that be political or religious mm. or metaphysical mm. or just basic human oppression. A lot of it seems to be struggling with that and um, various levels of that. I mean, it does give his works in this period quite an oppressive air. And that's an atmosphere that can be quite difficult to experience. I mean, the works themselves are very difficult movies, but they're really interesting and they have a lot to say if you're willing to give it a chance. And science fiction is such an interesting genre in the way it can kind of encapsulate both adventure stories and high concept ideas of technology or society and also philosophical musings and contemporary criticism of society or culture it kind of has different tools which are readily available unlike a lot of other genres that maybe have more specific formal elements and tropes of characters and themes there's no specific limit to science fiction of course it's often kind of post apocalyptical or closely like even star wars has this threatening state it also has an element of not exactly you know social commentary but this tyrannic government well mostly being like a fun adventure film i think zelowski the filmmaker utilizes it in a very unorthodox way it's very unlike any other science fiction films it almost doesn't feel so science fiction because it's not so focused on the technology, it's much more focused on society. Well, it's not hard science fiction, it's very soft science fiction, but that can be very interesting. I mean, science fiction is super interesting as a genre because it intrinsically have to extrapolate humanity or the human condition, technology-wise or social structures and historically. You have to look into the future in a way. And I really like soft science fiction a lot because more often that's dealing with human and societal and cultural issues as opposed to right. pure technological exploration. I like that stuff as well, dealing with concepts like technology as an excuse for examining like addiction. That's typical Philip K. Dick, that sort of stuff. Yeah, and Black Mirror. This, you know, it's not stylistically so similar, but it makes me think a little bit of Ursula K. Le Guin mm. and what kind of projects you have and what kind of focus you have. She deals with very different stuff in a very different way, but there's a similar approach to what science fiction is and can be, I think. I think there's a lot of similarities, especially in the way that when Ursula K. Le Guin writes, I mean, she can write fantasy or she can write science fiction, but the stories themselves always feel very true to exploring the human condition. Yeah. And, you know, Silver Globe does a lot of the same things. The focus is not on the technology at all, but the focus is more on like universal human truths about human society and the mm. human condition. 
it uses this science fiction story to elaborate on that and explore it. But that's not the important thing about it. The important thing is the human condition mm. and how it's explored. And it does remind me of Ursula K. Le Guin's, you know, masterful way of doing that. Of course, they're very different. But at the same time, they both have this almost ruthless way of dealing with it. Mm. They're very non-sentimental. That's true, yeah. She's a bit more of a humanist, maybe I would say. Well, Solowski is more of a misanthrope, <laughs> yeah, I yeah. guess. It feels misanthropic. It's not always so easy or maybe always so fair to define someone as a misanthrope. But there's a lot of misanthropic elements, definitely, in his view of what would happen if... <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're not positive movies. No, things end badly. Yeah, for sure. They're feel-bad futurism. Yeah. That is fascinating, though. And it's quite interesting because I was reading about the third book in Jerzy Solowski's series called The Old Earth where these uh, basically moon men, these descendants, they return to the earth, which is also like a collapsed society in, in many ways. I think they're shorter. I think they're pygma-like in stature. Oh. At any rate, they're treated pretty badly <laughs> when they come there. And I think that is like a society gone wrong science fiction type thing. Seems interesting. Yeah, it is a continuation of the late... 19th century, early 20th century social commentary science fiction that is often very fascinating using futuristic extrapolation of human technology to explore human society and stuff. And, you know, this movie does do that as well. You know, mm. even though it's a completely different mode and it's very aestheticized and realistic almost, it is kind of a beautiful continuation of that tradition of science fiction. Yeah. Doing research, I found this other podcast called Sweet Podcast, as in S-U-I-T-E, where they're interviewing Jerzy Solowski's grandson. It's called Adam Solowski, who's like a cousin of Andrzej Solowski. And he talks in detail about the situation his grandfather was in and situations that he knew about with his cousin. That's a very interesting listen. So if you're keen to know more about the context behind this film and the book, definitely check out the Sweet Podcast with uh, Adam Zelensky. That sounds cool. I haven't heard that. Is it like one episode or? That is an episode where he features. I can't remember what the episode was called, but if you search for On a Silver Globe, it'll pop up on your podcasting thingy. Nice. I mean, there's been a lot of stuff written and talked about this movie because it is such an interesting project mm. and it should be talked about more. It's fascinating and it's a good starting point for a discussion about a lot of different topics. I mean, you could do many episodes on just the costuming alone. I mean, it's yeah. super fascinating. Yeah. Actually, the costumes also remind me a little bit of Alexander McQueen, the fashion designer, died in 2010. I went to an exhibition at the V&A in London a few years ago where they had a huge amount of these costumes. I didn't really know so much about him before that, but they also like dip a lot into this tribal science fiction, this kind of weirdness and also reminiscent a little bit of Dark Souls, this very playful and exciting examination of fabrics and shapes, mixing cultures. It reminds of his stuff as well. Yeah, I just love the way science fiction movies have this amazing platform of being creative about costuming mm. and design. It's this amazing space of considering what might be. And I love that about science fiction costuming. It's just such a perfect place of being a bit mad. Yeah, exploring what clothes can do and what they can look like. What's possible? I mean, that is science fiction, right? What's possible? Mm. 
And uh, the fact that this movie was possible is pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty amazing. I mean, yeah. like, it's not an expensive film internationally in terms of, you know, but in, in terms of the Polish situation, it was. But it looks like a huge production. Like, there's so many things that, like, they have this scene where they're bombing the beach. And there's so many things that you feel like if they did that today, they'd need such, like, a huge crew in terms of security and safety, which they definitely did not have. No, uh, some of the scenes look downright dangerous. Yeah. There's some scenes on the beaches where they're fighting and part of the beach is lit on fire yeah. right next to them. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that would not be approved for insurance today. And I think when they crucify Marek... They just have a hand from the morgue, which they use in that scene. That, Jesus Christ. So they actually, yeah. But it's necessity, you know. You mm. have to be creative and ingenious about these yeah. things. And often that leads to really, really good mm. results. Mm. You see it, like, movies these days usually have a lot higher budget, but you see it a lot with earlier, especially science fiction movies, mm. like the first Star Wars movies, mm. have so many creative ways of making stuff mm. work. It's just really about problem solving mm. and just making it work at the end of the day. And uh, it's fascinating how you manage to pull it off, even when you don't have like these enormous resources. Yeah, it works really well here in terms of creating a believable space that's so different and so exciting to look at. Yeah, or even non-believable. Like it's so fantastical and cool and otherworldly and alien, but so human at the same time. It's really quite marvelous. I love it. I love it. So Thomas, do you have um, an exciting recommendation for us this this week, this day? Yes. I do. Kind of similar to my last recommendation. It's a Polish video game. Uh, Another Polish video game. Yeah, I thought it appropriate because there's a very interesting and vibrant uh, scene of games in Poland. It's a company called 11-Bit Studio and it's a bit more well-known, this game. It's called Frostpunk, which was kind of a big hit. And it's an apocalyptical setting, like the world's frozen over. And it's kind of like a resource management slash city builder in a way. Like you have survivors who are established bits of a society in the middle of like a huge, cold, icy, snowy landscape. And they've just got this one generator in the middle that generates heat. And then you have to kind of build settlements and medical tents and stuff. And it's very harsh. It's pretty difficult. It's a narrative game. That's kind of what's interesting. It has a story from beginning to end. Nice. And it's very beautifully made. Like you can see your people running around. They're kind of small on the screen, but you can see them working and carrying you coal and your bits of wood and steel. And now and again, you kind of have to sign laws for difficult situations. For example, when people get too sick, do you amputate them and make them more or less useless or that sort of stuff? And <laughs> last time I was playing it a while back, I kind of felt forced into setting up child labor. And I really didn't want to, so I sort of stopped playing. But like, you're kind of, you're really scrambling for your resources and you have to make these hard decisions for your society. How's it going to survive? How's it going to function? And yeah. it's pretty bleak and very interesting. And um, I mean, we were talking about the fragility of these like uh, small human societies. Yeah. You, you have to make some difficult choices. Sometimes you just, you got to amputate them and them legs. Right. It's a beautiful made game. I think actually they're making a second one now. That might be interesting to see if they can kind of up the ante in, in some ways. And Will it be it, even frostier? 
Yeah, and I wish I could zoom even closer on the characters and just see them, you know, see their faces yeah. and uh, see them working. Because, like, the base game, I don't think it works really well. It, it's pretty harsh, but it's also very engaging and it's very unique. It reminds me a little bit, as we often say, kind of these 90s games that are mixing and matching, trying something new. Yeah, it reminds a little bit of that kind of, not exactly sim game, but this place between a sim and an RTS and uh, you definitely you can mismanage and send them all to hell if you're not being uh, smart about it. Sounds terrific. Yeah, I have heard about it. I've heard it being discussed in positive terms. Yeah, yeah, it got a lot of awards, and rightly so. It's a um, really good game. So Frostpunk, really well made, and um, you know, very fun to play as well. That's really good mm. when you're playing a game. Yeah, and it's not a slog. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what about you? Uh, you got a rec for us? I have a, a horrible recommendation. It's an interesting YouTube video. Okay. Um, <laughs> there's a YouTube creator or a little streamer I watch a lot that I really appreciate. Vinny from Vine Sauce, Vinny Vine Sauce. He's this funny, you know, Italian-American guy okay. from Long Island. And he makes a lot of like Let's Plays and he's just, I don't know, kind of a relaxed personality, but he's kind of, he feels a bit mad too. And oh. I love that. But recently he put out this video, like he usually just does Let's Plays. Like he plays games and talks and like... And what sort of games? Uh, all sorts of games, like Binding of Isaac, a lot of Mario, a lot of Nintendo stuff. Okay. Okay. Um, Family friendly. Yeah, a lot of Switch things. All sorts of games, really. A lot of like beta games, demos, yeah, test out cool. indie games and stuff. Yeah. And he's like super funny mm. to me. But recently, like a couple of months ago, he put out this weird video called The Grey Leno Show. Okay. And it's, uh, I, I'm not going to go into too much detail of what it's about because it's almost pure madness. The main concept is that there's this grey humanoid talk show figure in this disturbingly empty stage with like some... I think it's VR chat or something like that. A lot of like weird models and it looks kind of ugly. It's like in situation, you can see the, the characters. It's like a game engine or something. Yeah. And like the mouth is moving when they're talking and mm. stuff. And it looks kind of ugly and bad intentionally. And it's just, he's talking about how he's like this crossbreed between Jay Leno and a gray alien. <laughs> and it just sort of devolves from there into like this nonsensical ramblings and just pure madness. It's super uncomfortable. It's a bit too long. Just a lot of horrific clips and mad figures and just disgusting and awful. And everybody hated it. And like every time he mentions it now in his videos, it's like it's just talking about how people hate it and think it was terrible. And I, I just love it. It's so funny to me. Does it like function like a short film? Is it this character just talking or do you see scenes or things happening? There's happen? lots of different scenes, oh. characters and madness going on. Okay, okay. Um, and I don't know, call it a short film. Sure. Sure. <laughs> It's really horrible. Oh, well, that does sound fun. I'll, yeah. I'm looking forward to check that out. <laughs> you just want like, I don't know if it's like 10 minutes of just feeling bad and being <laughs> horrified. But yeah. it's funny as well. Yeah, I, I think it's funny, but it's also horrible. <laughs> yeah, check it out. The Grey Leno Show. Just search that on YouTube and oh, you'll find great. it. You can leave a comment saying you how much you loved it. <laughs> but yeah, that's my recommendation. Oh, nice. That's very good. Well, that's it for now. Thank you for listening. You can get in touch with us at unpleasantmovies at protonmail.com. You can also check out our Instagram. We have a list of movie of films. The music for this episode was made by Luz Garning and Slater Ogor. The artwork for this episode was made by Thomas Simonson-Banbra. 
Yeah, next time we're shifting focus a little bit. We've been talking about, it might be interesting to examine films, the kind of unpleasant films, but maybe they're not so successful in terms of what they're trying to do. So they have a, like a theme they're exploring and they want to use excessive visuality or... Violence. Violence. Gore. But they kind of fall flat. They don't really work well on a fundamental level. So we're going to start next week and watch a Serbian film. True family classic. Well, have you seen it before? I have actually avoided that movie. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking forward to talking about it because yeah. I think it will be a very interesting uh, conversation. For sure. I love talking about movies that fail. Right. And with that... Uh, we'll see you next time. We'll see you some other time. And you'll hear us some other time. Yes. Or not. Or not. Bye-bye. Goodbye. <laughs>